everyone. Dr. Scott will be right back. He's fixing his contact lens. Woo, happy Saturday. Happy very warm Saturday here in Los Angeles. We're excited for this show for you guys today. Hi, everybody. Oh, oh you changed your background too. You, <laughs> you changed rooms. Yes. Oh, all right. In, so I was in the mausoleum. <laughs> so you can let us know if anyone has any questions. Anyway, welcome everybody back behind the couch. Happy that you're with us this Saturday. And Scott is back from Scotland. Your homeland. Yes. <laughs> How's the jet lag? You got home a week after I did. You know, I thought uh, today I thought it was all over and I was totally fine and I'm not. Like mm -hmm. I just got hit with a wave of fatigue in the middle of the day, but it's worth it. It was a great trip. Yeah, it certainly was. So what is keeping Scott awake is that he has to finish the Natalia Grace documentary <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> this Look at this, because this is just going to be his face the entire time we're recording tomorrow. Oh, I've got so much to say oh, I bet. about this. Like even for me, I have a whole bunch to say about that documentary. And I can't wait. So we, I think we actually, you know what we need to do? We actually need to, if we can fit it into our schedule, we need to can maybe do an extra live stream just, just on that episode of us talking about the documentary because that level of messed upness. Anyway, don't want to go yeah. too far. Into no, no, that, no. I mean, it's true. And I don't know. You guys will get our full thoughts for sure next week, but you wanted it. We're bringing it to you. <laughs> you asked for it. You not asked our for fault. it. Yet another sacrifice on our part. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So before we bring our guest on, we need to do our new Patreon member shout outs. Yes. So we have folks at all three of our levels at the associate level. We want to thank Holly H and Donna P. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. And at the intern level, we have Shona G and Celine. So thank you, interns. We always need new interns. And then we need new interns because we have people upgrading to the doctoral level all the time. So we need to yeah. fill those spots. And our new doctorate level Patreon member is Lisa M. So thank you guys so much. I After we got back from vacation, I sent out all of the Patreon packages for May. And we got caught up on the winners for the monthly giveaways for those of you in the doctorate level. So... It, you the two winners from April and May should have messages from me in Patreon. I need to know what you guys want to pick off the merch store for your gift. So get back to me and then all the June stuff will be going out after next week. So with that, any other housekeeping at the top, Dr. Scott? Just, I just wanted to say that, I mean, we mentioned it just a second ago that we got back from CrimeCon UK. Yeah. I was in Scotland for a week afterward. You did the Cotswold and France before you guys. CrimeCon UK was a blast. It yeah. was I mean, we've been to some good conferences. This one took it to a completely different level, not only from the production value, but also just for the opportunity that we got to present. And mm -hmm. the level of participants there was, I mean, yeah, I, I'm still just kind of blown away. Like you and I, we had our presentation at the end of the day and we could have probably gone on another 45 minutes or so. People stayed, people asked questions. It was engaging. And also it was like in the middle of London and it was in an awesome space. And I yep. would highly recommend if you can put it on your schedule for next year, go to CrimeCon UK. 
well worth the money. Yes, well organized, not too overwhelming, you know, with the size of it. And right. you have a few things to choose from two days in a row and you don't feel like you're missing out on a bunch of stuff. Like you have, like there's too many options, it's perfect amount of options. And like you said, the crowd was just so cerebral and we had so many great conversations Completely. with people. So and they yes, were really, they were, and they were really active with the the singles group, like not, oh, not yeah. singles as to hook up, but like if you're there alone, yeah, solo folks. Everybody, everybody is is in this group, and you could see that they immediately connected and were like, it was just anyway. I can't say enough good things about yep. it. Yes. So big and, thanks to Nancy, the event organizer. Yeah, Nancy of, just pulled it all out. She's awesome. Okay, so do you want to introduce our guest, and I will bring her on. I do. This is really amazing. We are always so excited about having people that are intimidating, and we've got one today <laughs> that's really intimidating, impressive. Dr. Tackett Gibson is a a clinical assistant professor at the University of Colorado Denver School of Public Affairs. Dr. Taggett Gibson teaches crime in the media, research methods, and criminological theory. And prior to joining the School of Public Affairs, she was a member of the sociology and criminal justice faculty at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. She additionally taught at Texas A&M's George Bush School of Government and worked there for 10 years conducting drug abuse research and court probation and juvenile justice programs evaluations. She completed her undergraduate degree in political science at Marshall University, and she earned an MA and PhD in sociology from Northeastern University. Welcome, 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 Dr. Tackett Gibson. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, you're welcome. That sounds so impressive when it's being read. <laughs> oh, don't even start. Don't, don't, don't give us that PhD level of, of imposter syndrome. We've already yeah. been there. <laughs> Plenty of imposter syndrome. And we've all been there where we have to cut it down to a paragraph and we're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Not that great. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks so much for taking time to chat with us. I believe we became acquainted really over Twitter yeah. with your research that you put out into the social media sphere, which we'll, of course, get to. But right away, we were happy to help help your mission and be on board. And we're glad that, you know, you're willing to come here and talk to us a little bit about it because our interest in this area has been just, I could think, ever growing since Dr. Scott and I entered sort of the creator space, which we could probably all the time we're like if anyone wants to do a dissertation you should study this or this <laughs> yeah I, I yeah one of the things i want to do starting in the fall i mean i've got to wrap up so much of this right now but i'd love to talk to more creators and yeah. talk about the motivation the impact they see you know, you know i mean i yeah there's multiple dissertations <laughs> Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And I think you'll yeah. get some fascinating responses from creators. I mean, even even in our colleagues that we've engaged with, mm -hmm. it's it's a fascinating background that they come from. Yeah, and there's a real activist impulse yeah. from from those that I've talked to just casually. I mean, there is a real sense of advocacy and you, you know, I really have learned a lot more about the creators and how it's not simply about a monetized product, which I think the industry is getting some heat for that right now. But sure. I think there are some who are really see their work as, as being advocates. I, I agree. I think that for many people that we have had long discussions with, they started out 
somewhat maybe more casually and this is going to be fun and I love this genre and you see this shift into a sense of purpose mm-hmm. in what they're doing and and making a difference and yeah. especially as we've seen everything move more towards moving away from the salaciousness of the perpetrators and more into victim centric discussions right. which we're really happy about right but can yeah. you tell us about other your other past research interests before we get to your current study like how some um, bullet points about how you got here it's very circuitous probably like anybody you know <laughs> yep. who's who's done an academic track but i actually wanted to do media and cultural studies in graduate school but we moved for my husband's position and so i ended up doing something far more pragmatic on juvenile justice program evaluation. And that kind of got me into the criminal justice world. I worked for a policy research shop uh, Mm -hmm. that did a lot of surveys, a lot of evaluation, health evaluation, criminal justice evaluation. That really allowed me entree into teaching criminal justice and criminology. And so that's been, currently I'm teaching faculty. So the research side of it is, I, I kind of have the privilege of doing something fun, you know, that that I want to do now because I don't have the pressure of tenure or, you know, all that. So I can bring in a bunch of students. We can have a lot of fun. They can learn a lot through the process and, and then still, you know, publish, produce good research and hopefully contribute to the literature kind of on the, not just on this field, but also just media, media impact. So that's kind of been the a weird trajectory. <laughs> so now I'm kind of back to media studies, which is really great, and I really enjoy it. Well, that crime in the media sounds like a fascinating class that I want to take. <laughs> I know Shiloh yeah, does as well. <laughs> Love it. Can you yeah. can you give us an idea of how has that class evolved since it first emerged? Like, is it the same class that it was? And the same thing that you had intended or has it changed since then? No, I, one of the issues that I face now in that class, which of course I, I, I have mixed feelings about, right? Because a lot of the material that I use in the first class, when we would look at, when we would talk about voyeuristic consumption of violence Mm. and all this and then postmodern film and how it kind of flips the script on its head and you get these reflective criminal characters that are morally ambiguous a lot of the films that i would show some quentin tarantino stuff natural born killers i mean now those movies there's just so much sexual assault in a lot of these films that now I'm just far more sensitive to the impact culturally we're far more sensitive to the impact of these these films so I've really kind of had to reshape how we talk about women in film and Mm -hmm. depictions of women and violence in film simply because because it's it's different I mean I might be able to watch that film by myself but but watching it in a classroom setting sure is a really different experience and so we want to be sensitive to that well it's so meta right like you're the things you're talking about and then showing a film in the class you have the risk of 
Are there sexual assault trauma victims in the class? You know, it's just how it's going to impact individuals and contribute to their trauma or create vicarious trauma or what have you. But it's, it's just, that's so interesting. It, it's almost hard to see it as a linear evolution. Really. It, it feels like this spiral in different areas. Yeah. I I've been teaching that class on and on for about 12 years Mm -hmm. and it really is you know, natural born killers is a, is a great example of this. There are scenes in that film, of course, it was written by Quentin Tarantino, so it's exceptionally violent, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there were scenes in that film where both men and women in the classroom would laugh mm. like, uh, at that film. Now, students grimace when I even say the name of the film. Mm. You know, they, they don't want to watch it. That um, is so, fascinating to me. Yeah, I also... To, To be honest, I also developed this class in Texas and now I'm teaching in Colorado. Mm. So there could be a difference in the students in my classroom, but I do think there's a different sensibility around just watching gratuitous violence and particularly sexual assault. I I wonder if we don't have less tolerance for it now than we have in the past. It reminds me of, I was reading an article on Huffington Post by a woman who watched, who's, you know, she's probably in her early fifties and she watched 16 Candles Mm -hmm. with her teenage daughter, which, you know, John, that was a John Hughes movie that was sort of, I mean, I was in my twenties at the time, but that was really like, you know, we thought that was the ultimate of sort of rom-com, but teenage gross out humor. And now through a younger person's eyes in today's world, you really see like, oh no, that was, we really had a different perspective on victimization of women at that time, just so casual about it. So I think our audiences have really shifted. They've really changed. And I, and I will say, you know, young, young women now, those Gen Z young women, they're much more outspoken, much more willing to call out, you, you know, these issues, even they even see these issues in ways that I don't see them. Mm. You know, I, I was in high school in the eighties and I think that e- even how women view some of these issues has changed generationally Absolutely. Uh, and our tolerance for behaviors has changed generationally. And yeah, I remember a man came into our class. There was some issues with the room or, or something like that. And he was just so rude and it was, it was really condescending and I didn't even notice it, you, you know, like it was one of those situations where he's saying something. And after he left about eight of the girls in class were like, I can't believe you let him talk to you that way. And I'm like, what way, you know? So wow. you didn't actually set that up as like a sociological in the moment experiment. I could have, right. I could have, <laughs> but, but yeah, it was, I, I w- it was one of those moments where it was just like, this is a different generation when it comes yeah. to how women respond and what women are tolerant of and mm-hmm. what they'll call out. So I, Anyway, I hope they're far more, I think they're far more empowered than what my generation was. Sure. Well, do you find yourself 
in any in any of the sphere of true crime or do you find yourself being a fan oh i'm a horrible fan <laughs> yeah i'm one of those well, that's an interesting response <laughs> oh, i'm definitely one of those who wonders why i'm a fan <laughs> okay. yeah well, what, was your ga- okay. what was your gateway to true crime crime junkie uh, oh you know, okay which is kind of a you know, it's the marijuana of podcast. But I mean, like, yeah. way before podcasts even existed. Like, what do you recall a certain case or a certain show that really piqued your interest, maybe even before college? Well, the, the OJ trial was, okay. was huge. Sure, you sure. know, I am even kind of a reluctant criminologist. I think that's why mm-hmm. I'm drawn to kind of crime media mm-hmm. and criminological theory because I don't really have to deal with a lot of crime. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a midsummer murder person, <laughs> not like the Muzak of crime shows. Not, I love it. Yeah, yes. not something that is hardcore. I'm not Dexter, right? Got so, it. Mid- um, midsummer is so like <laughs> quaint and like, oh, it's all gonna be wrapped up so nicely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally Muzak. So, so, so yeah. And then when my kids were young, I didn't want, I I was teaching criminal justice at the time. I didn't want to read anything about crime. I didn't Mm. want to watch anything about crime. It was just, there's something about having kids and, you know, that just, I talked about it all all the time at work. I didn't want to consume any crime media. And it's only really been until they they're 21 now 19 until they were older that i really started watching you know more media when I, when i was teaching crime in the media in texas i was watching natural born killers like three times yeah you're numb to it yeah i didn't want to i just wanted to consume like milo and otis and sure. disney yeah. after after all that so yeah. so yeah this is kind of new getting back into podcast is actually after a few years of you know, doing that. I also found, I know this is controversial, but I enjoy true crime obsessed. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. like shows that have a lot of rapport and humor. And, right. and again, I know that the humor aspect is problematic. I'm like I said, I'm, I'm an ambivalent consumer. Yeah. Um, well, and it, it depends how it's done. And, yeah. you know, we talk all the time about humor being a way of coping and yeah. gosh, I mean, that's been very, very relevant lately, you know, mm-hmm. with, with world events going on and, and how we consume that and how we cope it and what's appropriate and what isn't. And, right. you know, I think at the end of the day, picking what you're being humorous about and what purpose is it serving and how, you know, at least giving a thought of how would this come across right. to somebody that was, was impacted personally right. by it. But yeah, I think some shows do it really well and, yeah. you know, they sort of get that pass. And I like that. I like that idea of using humor to cope. I mean, you all probably do this in your field too, but we're constantly making fun of ourselves for being really excited about something that's actually horrible, right? (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. We could look at this. We could look at that. That's so great. You know, and then one of us will catch ourselves going, that's so great. And it's like, no, it's actually really horrible. Yeah. (laughs) But we're talking about it from, you know, kind of an intellectual, you make that distance, right? You, You make that distance intellectually versus like how we might respond more emotionally to a particular topic. And yeah, 
I, I know we've clear. evolved. We've evolved in that because not that yeah. like we were using humor inappropriately, but just a lot of times I felt like, gosh, we're so clinical about this. We almost feel, we almost sound so removed. Dispassionate. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. And, it, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, depending on what you're experiencing and what you're seeing and talking about every day, there is a desensitization aspect to that. Right. So, you know, we we try to work on that. I laugh at things that are inappropriate all the time. So, (laughs) you know, it's, yeah. In class, we're all making jokes that outside of class, people would think we're yeah. On the verge of becoming serial killers. No, totally. It's so dark. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and so I guess sort of bridging that between like getting into talking about your current research study, did your students kind of lead the way in wanting to talk about this and what, let me do this. So we're, we were able to tease your research a little bit in the episode that we did, because obviously just in the little bit of back and forth we've had with you, why don't you tell us what you set out to study and how that sort of came about? And then I just, I, I have some other like nerdy research questions for you after that. Yeah, it was honestly, I was listening to a crime junkie episode, sitting in my bed. I had a glass of wine on my nightstand. So and yeah, I'm getting really like relaxed and we've talked about some of the things that have come up about that and and I realized I am a middle class white woman listening to stories about other middle class white women become victimized Mm. and it's relaxing me Mm. You, you know and so at kind of at the same time I was teaching a research methods class and we were moving into our section on survey research And so the survey really came up as a way to model how to construct good survey questions, how to organically come up with a research question Mm -hmm. or, you know, just kind of turn your curiosity into something that you can actually explore. And so I was using it more as a teaching tool. And then I just kept writing questions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then digging in, you know, when you write a survey, you dig into the research house has been asked before, what do we know about this topic? And it was just a really good way to, and then at the end, when, when I was done, my students pre-tested or they were the first, right. Mm -hmm. To take it. And so it was a really good exercise for that class. And, and ultimately I just decided, okay, well, this is done. You know, I, I need to do it. And had a, was lucky enough to, we have a really great undergraduate office here that provides funding for students, undergraduates to do research, was able to recruit a couple of undergraduates to help me in the initial phase of, you know, larger pre-testing, recruiting, we've kind of given three surveys in a way. Yeah, what an um, opportunity, wow, for undergrads too. Yeah, it was great. So it's kind of evolved into a larger much larger project than what I still don't know why I'm relaxed by. <laughs> well, we'll get to listening. that because I, I want to touch on that in a little bit, what another doctor has to say about that. But, but what did you find as far as research that had been done prior to yours when you were doing sort of your lit review for this topic? Well, one, one of the things I wanted to pull from, and this is, it's, it's been done and kind of looked at, but, but in, in media studies, 
particularly around violence. There's kind of this classic theory called cultivation theory by George Gerbner. And the idea goes that if we consume violence over a prolonged period of time, we develop what's called a mean world or what he called a mean world syndrome, meaning that we become more fearful of crime, we become more distrustful of people. And, and that's been studied and it's more complicated than that, of course, right? Than just media consumption. It tends to be neighborhood, history of victimization, race, a lot of different things, you know, kind of play into that. Mm -hmm. But television kind of consistently seems to be one of these things when people are exposed to television. When you control for other factors, there does seem to be some relationship there, particularly even news. Okay. Um, even news consumption. So podcasts actually give kind of a new spin on that. This is a different form of where we're not watching TV as, as much anymore. We're on social right. media. We're, we're listening to podcasts. Television is particularly young, younger women. It's, it's not their primary way of consuming mm -hmm. media. So podcasts kind of offer a new way to look at cultivation theory to see what their attitudes towards fear of crime is. And, and it seems to be that among this group, podcasts aren't increasing fear of crime. In fact, it. they might be producing some resilience okay. uh, and encouraging might be, you know, we're still, <laughs> we're, we're still sure. doing some of the analysis, but actually promoting self-protective behaviors like, and self-protective yeah. In the survey, we're defining self-protective behaviors as things like changing your walking pattern, you, you know, not walking in certain areas, carrying a screamer, walking with friends, even carrying a handgun is one of the questions. Now that gets fewer responses, right? Fewer yeah. people are actually doing that, but so five screamers. I wanted to ask you, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but you're no, no, no. like, you. this is so fascinating. I can't help but think, and of course, this is my anecdotal perspective, but from, you know, if, if I was, you know, with my training and my educational and my, my self, my personally directed goals of becoming more aware of marginalization of communities such as as women you know i want to challenge myself to understand the impact of being alone at night walking to your car all these things that we talk about but i i can't help but wonder as well if podcasts don't offer women the opportunity to really give themselves permission to not always be acquiescing of male intrusion into their social lives yeah. like maybe this gives them additional like no i don't have to be nice to this guy at starbucks mm -hmm. who keeps asking for my number like i don't have to give him i can give him attitude if i want because right. i still see young women struggling like that they come into my therapy my private practice with these things of like oh god this guy at the gym was such a jerk and i'm i'm hoping that like it, what you're talking about gives them permission to be able to say i don't have to do this this is this is bordering on criminal just by your being in my face. Yeah, there seems to be there seems to be some Im some impact there of of podcasts that they're not now part of this too. Like I said, we've done survey recruitment kind of in phases, honestly, just simply because the academic year gets 
you know, busy. So we seem to be pretty sample dependent. And by that, I mean, it's almost as if different podcasts have such different groups of listeners that we're still trying to tease out what that means. They're, well, that's they're all pretty wow. much, yeah, they're all pretty much 18 to 45 white women in particular. It's a very homogenous group of people who are responding. But in our first wave, we, we had about 60% who reported victimization. Once we add our kind of our second wave, we're we're closer to about 48. Still, mm. that is an incredibly high, far higher than reports of the general population. And just like violent victimization or how are you defining that? Yeah, we define that as, well, some type of domestic violence, some type of violent, maybe an assault, mm. and then a sexual assault. Mm. Mm-hmm. So still even we've looked at sexual assault. I'm not remembering what that percentage is, but still high levels of sexual assault. Yeah. And so those who are victims tend to actually be less fearful of crime and they've already adopted the self-protective behaviors. So it's not oh. necessarily influencing their behavior. The podcasts are influencing women who haven't been victimized. Um, I love this. Very interesting to tease out, you know, yeah. to see yeah. who's who's sort of coming to the table that already has a trauma or victimization background. And then, you know, like Scott and I, I told you our sort of little area of interest has been, well, what is true crime doing to people that maybe haven't been victimized (laughs) before is there any secondary vicarious trauma happening just by the consumption of all of it right and you know i mean we speak to so many survivors at these festivals and events that we go to and they're there you know they're exposing themselves to it again you know we don't really get into the reasons why i mean that's that's pretty a private thing to sit there and have like a conversation with someone you just met but they're very willing to tell their stories and i think you have to be at a certain level of healing and resilience to be able to openly talk about your story even if you're just an attendee not not i'm not talking to any content creators right Yeah, we asked about why they listen, and um, one of the answers was trust your gut, and the other was I relate to the victims, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it it does seem like, again, this is all relatively preliminary, that, you know, people tend to listen for several different things. One is kind of this entertainment factor, right? right? Just simply, it relaxes me. I like the voice. I like the format, right? There's just this kind of production value and predictability. Then there is kind of an interest. I want to know why criminals commit crime. I want to learn more about policing. So there's just this general interest in criminological theory and processes, Mm -hmm. CJ processes. But then the victims tend to talk about things like, I I learned to trust my gut, I relate to the victims, those types of answers. So I wonder, and hopefully we'll, not to get too in the woods, but we'll be limited about what we can talk about in our Mm. interviews and focus groups. And you might be familiar, but the university has to approve our set of questions. So we might be limited, but I'd, I'd really like to, I wonder if those who are survivors aren't listening so that they can relate mm-hmm. and not feel a sense of, of kind of being alone. And, and so there's something comforting and knowing that, you know, I'm not the only one. Uh, yeah. I'm not isolated in this. Yeah. So you're doing this, you have 
the different phases of the survey that you've done, and then you're going to follow up with interviews? Yeah, I'm hoping to start in, in mid-July and doing some, at the end of the survey, I asked some folks if they were interested. Mm -hmm. So I'll be kind of randomly sampling from those who said yes and and trying to tease out some of these things a little bit more. This is so exciting because people always, always ask, you know, what is the draw to women to true crime? Because it's so glaring, the demographics. And I think to have some real research behind this to even just, even if it's, here's three categories that people fall into, it's still wildly fascinating to me, especially because yeah. men are more often victims of violent crime still right. at the hands of other men. So numbers wise, I, I still don't, understand that but well you know we're getting closer <laughs> i remember going out on a call in my day job with one of my detective partners and he was telling me about when he was a, a beat cop having to do you know uh, a, a an interview and a breakdown with a woman who had been the victim of a, a pretty violent crime mm -hmm. and she had a history of being a victim and they were and she lived in a really really rough neighborhood here in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And as he was interviewing her, one of the last questions he said was, well, I mean, you know, do you feel safe? And she's like, oh, I feel totally safe in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said, I got back in my car and I thought, I don't feel safe in this neighborhood right. at all. This, in fact, this statistically is not a safe neighborhood. Right. So I just found that fascinating that within your own sphere, you know, you create your own sense of safety or your own sense of fear. Right. And maybe, you know, she had not been a victim of violent crime before. This was a one-off incident. But I think that you're, we have a perspective on our own environment that we reinforce because it does make us feel safe. We, in, in effect, are creating an environment where we feel safer. And I did want to share a comment from one of our listeners on YouTube who said, I feel like my compassion for people has grown immensely since I started listening to true crime podcasts. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting perspective too. I, I would agree that my, my understanding and compassion for victims has grown instead of mm -hmm. me becoming numb to it. I think bigger about how people get victimized and how random these things can happen just because I'm getting exposed to the type of crimes that I didn't grow up with. I didn't experience right. those kind of things. Fascinating. Yeah, there stuff. was a, there was a, a man, I attended a conference, a podcast conference in the fall of last year. And, you know, they're pretty much all women. And then a, a sprinkling <laughs> of spouses right? that were drug there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so one of the spouses in a Q and a got up and he said, you know, I listened to this begrudgingly with my wife, but I never realized how afraid women mm. are of just existing. Wow. And mm. he said, so now I'm, I am, I'm more empathetic. I talked more to my friends about we don't even know like how how frightening normal life can be and i was just really excited by that and and struck by the yeah. impact but, but but it also makes me think maybe the wrong audience is listening right <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah we need to play it subliminal subliminally to the men at night when they're yeah. sleeping <laughs> right. that's wonderful right. what a cool thing to witness and even for him to get up and and say it yeah yeah that's great which festival did you go to 
Obsessed Fest. Oh, okay. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know if you guys would be going or not. It seems to be kind of growing a little bit. Yeah. We, we just got back from a big one in the UK. And so we are on like slow down mode because we, yeah. can, you know, we, we have checked the box for overextending ourselves <laughs> already. So yeah. we committed to anything else for the rest of the year. But, but yeah, I, I hear last year's the first one was, was pretty great. So yeah, it was really, it was really fun. And so I'm hoping to schedule some creator interviews this November. Yeah. Yeah. I love the point of this conversation and it makes me think about how as a, as a former law enforcement psychologist myself, many times I think men don't understand that they are able to be victims. Mm. Like it's mm. not really within their consciousness, within their paradigm of understanding that if they get into a bar fight that's instigated by somebody, they don't, they see themselves as like, I got into a fight or this guy beat the shit out of me, but right. they don't see themselves as victims. And that's a problem because I can't get to helping them treat the underlying trauma Right. They don't understand that they themselves had been victimized. So I can't I wonder if this is part of it is like we're we're using an emotional vocabulary that a, a big part of our population doesn't have any relationship to. Mm. Yeah, um, kind of follow Kevin Smith from, you know, the Bob anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maker. Yeah. That Kevin Smith. Asylum Bob. Yeah. Yes. And he was talking about an incident that happened when he was a child and I don't know if I'm remembering it correctly, but it was something like we might have called just plain doctor, right? Right, right. Like yeah. that. But it was with an older boy. And he he said, I'd never really recognized that this was abuse. Mm. I never really recognized that I was really very embarrassed and traumatized yeah. by this. And so it, it was a really interesting piece to, to read from him that I do think a lot of boys, young men, uh, men blow off, mm -hmm. right? These experiences or don't realize the impact of them until they come up far later. Right. Sure. Or they, they try and share it and then it's knocked down. You know, I, I have people in my private practice that they finally get to the point where they go to their parents and they say, this and this happened by one of our relatives and the parents go, well, that never happened. Right. <laughs> like yeah, that, right. I think is far, probably far too common when it comes to, you know, the male perspective. But anyway, we, we wanted to get back. I don't want to get too far off track from. Yeah. Are, are there any other the results, yeah. preliminary results that you're allowed to share? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was asking questions about attitudes sort of part of the cultivation theory too, is that with mean world syndrome, we develop perspectives that are very pro law enforcement right. very, and highly punitive. Right. So I asked these questions about, you know, attitudes towards police, attitudes towards judges and prosecutors, and then some punishment questions about severity of you know, beliefs and how right. severe punishment should be. Wow. What a, what a time in the world to be asking those questions and seeing what yeah. the answers are going to be. And, you know, yeah. podcasts are different. They mm -hmm. don't present a monolithically positive or a consistently positive representation of the system. Right. It, it's often more, a more critical 
you know, why didn't police do something? Or they acted too late, or this person went missing and they sat on it, mm -hmm. right? And there was no, so it, it is a more critical, it's not like watching procedural crime shows where the cops are always the good guys. Yeah. Um, but then this is also more left-leaning than a right-leaning politically population. Sure. Totally. So there, there's some ambivalence. I mean, yeah. you would expect, yeah. right? More ambivalence towards police. People still trust that if they approach the police, the police would do something kind mm -hmm. of like on a street, you approach mm -hmm. the police. But when you ask questions about, do you think the police are fair? Do you think that they only pull over people they really think they've that have committed crime. I'm kind of forgetting the language of the questions yeah. right now, but there's almost kind of like this social distrust of the police, but a personal, okay, I think they might right. do right by me. Which well, of course, if you're a middle-aged white woman. I know, yeah. Of course. Yeah. And yeah, they probably would. Yeah, right? they probably <laughs> would. You probably think you're gonna be taken care of and that things are gonna go, you know, the way you right. would expect them to be, but, if you're listening to real accounts of people different from you not getting the same treatment, I think that's gonna be super fascinating because in true crime, I've found that there is what you're describing sort of this like, you know, so many stories of the police being so incompetent or bungling a case that, you know, there's that view or the sort of cover up dirty cop narrative, right? So, so I find that true crime podcasts are just as willing to go there as they are to glorify these yeah. like super law enforcement celebrities almost yeah. in the space. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Which just like it, it's it, and it's not like it's the same person doing both necessarily that I can think of an example, but just as a, a community, you know, we are certainly all about like Paul Holes could never do any wrong, of course, right, but right, let's vilify right. all these other cops. Right, right. And it, <laughs> and we it, love Paul. I'm not, Paul, you're, you know, yeah. you're doing great. <laughs> Just but an example. It, it seems to be contingent on the outcome of the case sure. in, a, in particular podcasts too. If the victims are treated well, if the family's treated well, if it looks like they're investigating, they're heroes. Yeah. If, if they're slow to investigate, they're completely vilified. But yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. You still have though, like you said, I mean, this, and I mean, from a criminological perspective, experts can cause just as many problems. Ah. They can ah. help. Right. So yeah. there's an appropriate skepticism of the expert. Totally. Particularly when it comes to court proceedings and their participation and yes. and theorizing and coming up with all sorts of crazy ideas around what might have happened with, with a crime before. Yeah. It's Yet people will buy tickets to an event where, you know, Dr. Henry Lee is putting on right. a class. <laughs> Because, you know, he's he's this legend and it might be the same PowerPoint he's been doing since 1989, but people are right. buying the tickets for it. Right. So it, or, or they'll go and listen to someone talk about a crime and half of it's speculation. Well, and yeah. And maybe grounded, mm -hmm. but still, if in an unsolved crime, there's, there's generally some kind of leap. 
um, yeah. into speculation. I'm hoping that you're, as you continue to do this drive into your research, that you look at this phenomenon of the citizen detective as well, mm -hmm. because there's it's there's such a spectrum there. I mean, I'll be the first to admit there are some fascinating cases out there and fascinating podcasts of exonerating people and yeah. finding guilty people. And it would not have happened if it weren't for the passion, the absolute passion and drive of these listeners and content creators. I mean, that's amazing. But I've also seen the absolute opposite of it where me working in tandem with law enforcement and I know thing like I, uh, there's this wild perspective by like a, a podcast that just assumes that there's this magic, you know, that there's right. just this unlimited source of funding for cops to be able right. to seek out this type of investigation or so, and sometimes this is also what I'm starting to witness as well, where people just don't understand that the, the simplest answer is sometimes the one that is the most boring and the one that is the most frustrating. Right. You want there to be a conspiracy. You want there to be some big cover up so that it feels more justified that your loved one is missing or, yeah. or dead right. instead of going, no, this was really a horrific situation of a person being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Or you're more likely to be victimized by a family member. Sure. And so, right. in fact, I tell my classes now, if you're having an affair, you need to bubble wrap your spouse, because <laughs> if I've learned from anything from these podcasts is if your spouse dies, you will be convicted. Oh, God forbid you have somebody on the side. <laughs> yeah. So, so bubble wrap your spouse. Don't let them go outside. <laughs> But yeah, 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 exactly. That's hilarious. That's just the kind of humor that I love. <laughs> right. I, I get uh, one one thing that I get frustrated with is yeah, people don't understand the system and this idea yeah. that police kind of owe the mm -hmm. public information. Oh, uh, yes. About an ongoing case just immediately drives yeah. me bananas. Same. The other thing that again, I listen to these, I enjoy these podcasts. But one of the problems I do think with podcasts that focus on particular crimes is that we lose some historicity, right? If we're focusing on, I mean, the fact of the matter is crime has dramatically declined yep. since right. the 80s, early 90s. Right. We are far less likely to be victimized now than we were when I was growing up in the mm -hmm. 70s. Um, so... If we are looking at cases from the 70s, 80s, 90s, we're listening to different versions of podcasts and people do, people will focus on a case and listen to every yep. podcast that's been published about it. We lose this, this idea of, we begin to think that crime is far more common mm -hmm. than it actually is. And I'm not sure that's healthy. We already have this cultural fascination with crime and victimization. Right. It, if it leads, it leads, right? Yeah. And politicians are constantly talking about it. So, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about that too. Like if well, but it, what you it, said is true, if we only focused on crimes that occurred this year, you won't have a full series. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's so true. I mean, it's, we're inundated every single night, but, you know, on the news with crime, but the consumer must be interested because it wouldn't lead, you know, right, right. So it's definitely yeah. not anything, anything new to be interested in crime and that part of human behavior. So I did want to 
ask about this viral TikTok that has been going around where oh, yeah. Dr. Thema Bryant was interviewed and I did not watch the full episode or listen to the full episode of this. But there's a little clip where she says, quote, if your idea of relaxing before you go to sleep is to watch three episodes of Law and Order, then I would encourage you to think about why is trauma relaxing to me? That's what it is, harm, crime, violation, attacks, and that's what's going to soothe me into my bedtime. So basically, you know, and, and she she's a president of the APA. She's, you know, has some bona fides behind her. She's a, a trauma expert. But saying like this comfort of watching true crime because it soothes, it soothes you because it feels familiar. And, you know, that's probably someone that would benefit from, from counseling rather than just true crime consumption. So going back to you relaxing with a glass of wine and not that I'm asking you to talk about any trauma history, but what do you, what do we think of this? I mean, Scott and I haven't even talked about this. Well, I, first of all, tr true crime has been fascinating for millennia. Yes. You no, know, it's it's not a new phenomenon. Penny Dreadfuls. Yeah. One of my, I'm I'm anyway for some odd reasons. Well, one pulp, of the victims pulp fiction of, from the the 30s and 40s, like the serials that the, you could buy in yeah. the drugstore for five cents, and they were all detective and crime stories. Those were very lurid and very, very and popular. Very popular. Even one of Jack the Ripper's victims produced pamphlets mm -hmm. um, yeah. based on crimes. This isn't new and the popularity of it isn't new. It might be new. I'm not even sure. I have to really dig into there are some authors that look at whether this is new among women uh, as a population or not. But I, my, that would be my first response. This isn't new. It's simply that the format has changed. And anytime there's a new technology, the the Penny Dreadful, the comic book, the television, there's always this round of complete fear around or an exaggeration of its impact. Though I'm I'm not gonna ridicule or criticize the president of the APA. <laughs> no, I think I, I agree. I think she, I think she has a very valuable perspective. Yeah. And I would I would need to watch the entire show as well. Although I that that show is a little bit grating yeah. <laughs> to me. Yeah. Like it's it's there's just a, a quality about it that I find not particularly interesting, but I think that her perspective is valuable. And I would say from my clinical standpoint, I'd be just as concerned about people who are comforted by watching nothing but Hallmark Christmas movies because yeah. it gives you an unrealistic view of what life is. But I think maybe they serve the same purpose is mm. there is there is a denouement. There is a finalized resolve at the end of even the majority of law and order right. svu and right. who the hell doesn't want to be comforted by elliot stabler like geez <laughs> like i would i would love to lay back on chris maloney and feel safe yeah tell me know, about it at the end of now, the there's day the, this is with some of the nicole rafter is or was a writer about true crime i'm not true crime i'm sorry crime in the media and she says that this is a way of working out morality. These are morality plays. I love that. I love that. And they're not, again, they're Shakespearean in a, mm -hmm. in a new form. They teach us what is right and wrong. They help us feel justice in the end. They, they help us, again, kind of think morally about things in, in ways that we're not necessarily allowed to. This is part of the yeah. reason why the OJ trial was so popular, right? We all had this play 
I mean, and I'm not trying to diminish yeah. the importance or the seriousness of it, but we all had these conversations about right and wrong, about race, all yes. of these difficult things, men and women, all of these difficult conversations that we don't normally have get spoken of through the media, particularly crime in the media. Yeah. And I think they serve a really important social function. We come together, you know, the Facebook groups form or perform an important function. People meet each other, right? particularly after COVID, when people have been isolated, there's something important about, about having something in common. Yeah. So I'm not sure that it's all about consuming trauma mm -hmm. as much as it is sharing in a narrative, like you said, that has a conclusion, that has a predictability. Yeah, a cautionary tale. Instead right. of saying it around a campfire, it's right. a podcast. Right. It's Little well, Red Riding Hood. Yeah. Right. And yeah. in Little Red Riding Hood, you have the hunter who comes to the rescue. You have a parasocial relationship with the the archetype of the hunter. I have a parasocial relationship with with Olivia and with Elliot because of right. their healthy but challenging relationship and how they deal with trauma and deal with this. I mean, I just remember even bef because the show has been on for so long, it's been on before I came into this career. Yeah. And, you know, you have and the, the same way people attach to friends, you know, like the, the sitcom yeah. people they have a relationship with. So I think it, that we do have to I, I wonder if we have to suss out between those that watch forensics files and those that are watching three episodes of SVU, like because right. those are two different fictionalized versus real life as well. Right. I don't know, and, ripped from the headlines. Yeah, True. And predictability. Sure. I'm, I listen to a lot of Dateline and yeah. why I, but I mean, I like Keith Morrison. There's, there's even something comforting, Ashley Flowers' voice, mm -hmm. right? There's something comforting about the production. I don't think it's all being comforted by the trauma i think it's being comforted by the voice the structure the narrative arc yep. right it's it becomes music right it's midsummer murders even if it's we know it's far more serious than midsummer murders <laughs> but there is this way in which it the predictability serves the function absolutely well what a wonderful conversation and we appreciate you sharing your work with us before it's out there and all written up nice and pretty and published yeah. and we can't wait to see what's next after that so oh that'd be uh, great yeah uh, once once you start you know sort of your other branch off of this this summer we'll have to circle back with you at some point to see what is next that'd be great and i'd love to interview you guys let's do it and let's anybody it. else let's snowball sample this you guys like hook me up with you the, let us know oh we will hook you up because <laughs> yeah I, it, it would be really interesting to because you you kind of have just all these different types of creators in and of itself, right? Your investigative journalists, your field work professionals like Scott and I, who have no idea what the hell we're doing, starting a podcast, you have victims, you know, you know, it, it's going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, sounds great. Thank you so much for your time, Melissa. We appreciate well, thanks it so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys pushing out the link and, yeah. you know, promoting Anytime. everything. You've been such a huge help. I can't, 
I can't say thank you enough. It's the so. least we could do is push out Absolutely. a little link for you to get as many participants as you could. So that's great. That's great. So all right. Thank well, thank you. We'll be in touch. Okay. And thanks, everyone. Have a great Saturday. Thanks for joining us behind the couch. We'll see you next time. Bye, folks. Bye, everyone. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>